Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Podcast listeners, fortify your minds. It's a brand new episode of Script Apart. I'm Al Horner, and this is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter breaks down their first draft of what became a beloved movie or series. This week, I'm overjoyed to be joined by Michael Waldron, the screenwriting sorcerer behind Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Directed by Sam Raimi, this latest Marvel blockbuster was well and truly superhero storytelling with the handbrake off. It had interdimensional chases, fights with one-eyed squid monsters, and yes, pep talks from zombie corpses, meaning Doctor Strange 2 more than lived up to the madness of its title. The film follows the surgeon-turned-superhero as he attempts to protect a young girl, America Chavez, with the power to open portals between locations in the multiverse. It's a journey that sends Strange on a borderline horror movie descent into darkness and violence, as familiar characters from the MCU make shocking lurches into evil and villainy. Now, I know what you're thinking, wrestling all of that into some kind of coherent story sounds like a challenge. Luckily though, Michael was well prepared for such a task. He already had experience bringing complex sci-fi concepts to life with a lightness of touch from working on the animated series Rick and Morty. He also was on the blacklist a few years ago for a genius spec script called The Worst Guy of All Time and The Girl Who Came to Kill Him. That screenplay contained a lot of the same unrelenting momentum and time-hopping shenanigans that we see in Strange 2. It also helped, of course, that Michael was the showrunner on Loki, the Marvel series that introduced to the MCU the multiverse concept that this movie takes and runs with. I had the pleasure of chatting with Michael about, well, everything to do with this film. We talk about how the darkness of the pandemic helped him craft that second act surprise, which for my money, by the way, is one of the boldest things I've seen in a Marvel movie. 
We also discuss how hard it was to balance the terror and the tragedy of a certain witchy character in this movie, and the meaning of the question, are you happy, that Doctor Strange is confronted with again and again in this screenplay. Even superheroes, it seems, experience dissatisfaction and feelings of, what now, is that it? There's a little nod towards Michael's upcoming Star Wars movie at the end, so look out for that. The film is out today on Disney+, Plus, so you have no excuse not to check it out before we dive into this spoiler special. I don't want to ruin any surprises, I'm no wizard, there is no spell I can cast to undo that damage. Fun fact for you guys, this episode coincides with Script Apart's second birthday. I'm actually recording this intro, then hopping straight on a train to go see producer Cam to have a little birthday drink. It's been an insanely fun journey so far, so I wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened and supported. A special shout out, of course, to our Patreon supporters, a list that includes Paul Stein and D. Cooksey. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. Okay, I better wind this intro up if I'm ever going to catch that train. This is the awesome Michael Waldron discussing the first draft secrets of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Thanks as ever for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Hey, Michael, welcome to Script Apart. How's it going today? Good, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, massive congrats on the movie, man. You know, between Loki and this film, you've very much been Marvel's Mr. Multiverse. You know, you've been entrusted with telling two really important tales, introducing that concept to audiences. What is it that appeals to you, Michael, about multiverse stories? You know, we had the Daniels on a few weeks ago who had their theories about what's so exciting, but also so challenging about stories dealing in multiverses. I'd love to hear your take. Jeez, well, yeah, those those guys nailed it. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, in part, I, I feel like I've I'm lucky because I'm 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 really this is a time where audiences are pretty familiar with the idea of the multiverse. Actually, it's, it's been out there now and there's been several movies about it. And even in Rick and Morty, when we were doing it, it felt like people were, were starting to get in on that joke. Um, so to speak, um, what's cool about it is just, it, it gives you a, a logical storytelling scaffolding to, to do a lot of fun stuff, you know, paths not taken characters, literally confronting what ifs, you know, what, what might've been, how might their lives have turned out? I feel like those are always questions posed dramatically in any story. Um, What if I had made this decision? What if I had done this differently? what if I was a different kind of person? You're always, you're always trying to ask those questions of your characters. Cool thing about the multiverse conceit in science fiction is you actually get to, to do it. And sometimes you get to go to those places and show those other versions of characters. So it's just a more heightened, cool um, way of telling. I, th- I think in a lot of ways, stories maybe we've always been telling. How grateful were you, Michael, to to those pre-existing stories like, you know, the, the Spider-Verse movie, you know, in terms of audiences were already somewhat familiar with the concept. So, you know, you could start this movie at 100 miles per hour because you didn't need to do as, quite as much handholding, I suppose. Totally. Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, yeah, that, that 
that may be more than anything is, is what um, deserves the credit for, for the multiverse going mainstream, you know, Rick and Morty were doing it and it was, it's kind of a little sci-fi comedy thing that has its big fan base, but Spider-Verse is something that my parents saw and, and loved. That's such an amazing story that takes a really heady concept and just grounds it in character and emotion. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, it, it's in the same way that if you're making a space movie now, you're lucky that Star Wars already exists because people understand uh, <laughs> that, that, that ships can get from one planet to another. They, all those movies have done some work for you. I feel like we're getting to that point with the multiverse right now. Amidst all the chaos and moving parts of this movie, it's such a feat that it still feels about something, that there's a real kind of character journey at the heart of this thing that feels authentic and real. And, you know, watching it again, it kind of strikes me as as ultimately a story about a guy with problems relinquishing control who needs to accept that even as a superhero, there are some things he can't bend to his will, which, you know, is, is a very human journey. You don't need to be a wizard to relate to that. Um, to, to what degree would, was, was that your, your identification of what the sort of emotional core of this movie is? And, and yeah, how did you go about landing on, on what the emotional core of this film had to be? I think that was, I think that was exactly it. I, th- I think that that's absolutely what we were chasing. Um, for Steven's arc in this movie and, and the way that, that you can hold him up opposed to Wanda, you know, Wanda believes that she can control everything. Um, Probably rightfully so (laughs) she's, she's so powerful, you know, even though Wong tells her you can't Steven, I, I went back and I, you know, studied the first movie a lot. Um, and it's interesting. He, he has these flaws when he's a surgeon, um, where he wants to be in control and and it's all about him. Um, and he's injured. And then he just, in the way he fixes himself is he just becomes essentially a new kind of surgeon. He becomes a sorcerer. Uh, he goes back to medical school. And in that first movie, it felt like the what he overcame was this notion of it's not about you, what, what the ancient one says to him. What I thought was the place in the character journey that, that we could still explore was the fact that he did still have to be in control. Um, going to Camertage and becoming a sorcerer was a way of taking back control of his life. He couldn't be in charge in the operating room anymore, but when he became a sorcerer, uh, suddenly he was back in charge. And you see it throughout his appearances in the rest of the MCU movies after the first Doctor Strange and Thor Ragnarok. You know, he's telling Thor what he can and can't do in the city. And then obviously in the Avengers movies, he's, you know, he's the one guarding the time stone, giving the time stone away and even telling Tony there's only one way we can win this war. He's really found a way to stay in control. Um, and so it felt like on the heels of all that trauma that he's, he's endured, 
that became an interesting thing to explore. What what would make Stephen Strange finally understand that there's a point at which to win and also maybe to achieve real happiness or fulfillment, he's going to have to relinquish control. And was there any part of yourself that could relate to that struggle or was there any part of yourself that you were able to pour into his kind of, <laughs> yeah. The writer. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I am constantly drawn to stories about characters um, who want to be in control, who need to be in control and the the world around them forces to can confront the reality that that isn't always possible. Um, I felt like that was the same with Loki, you know, that, that there was a character that <clears throat> through his guile, his cunning, his charm, found a way to always bend any situation to his control. And then when he enters the TVA, he, he loses all of that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it's when you're a writer, you're, you're telling the story. Um, but it's then, and, and I guess in a way you have control when you're writing your first draft, but then you're going to go make a giant movie for two years with, you know, a million brilliant collaborators who all have their own ideas of how something should come to life. And so it's a constant uh, seating of handing over the knife, so to speak. And so, yeah, I, I definitely relate with that journey. You mentioned your first draft there. So yeah, let's get into it. What was that first draft like, Michael? How different was it to the finished film? What were the major changes? Well, <clears throat> there was, there was an original re revision of an existing draft that I did. Um, then and that was that was right before COVID, and that's when we were running toward a production an early production date. And then when COVID happened, that was when we said, "All right, let's take a step back." And Sam and I really went to work and figured out what do we want this movie to be about. And so I guess that's that's the first draft I'll I'll talk about. Um, remarkably. In a, in a movie that when I think about it, I'm like, geez, I, I wrote, I must have written 200 plus drafts, revisions, and I was always writing for two years. Um, the first draft structurally was, was pretty much what's there in a lot of ways. This, this was the journey that, and, and really even the scenes, you know, the, the general breakdown opening, um, on America's adventure in another universe, her encountering Stephen and Wong in our universe, uh, the reveal that Wanda is in fact the one after her that, that leads to a siege on Comertage that leads them to an alternate universe where they encounter the Illuminati. And then, and then finally things, uh, everything comes together at Mount Wondegore. Mount Wondegore. That structure stayed intact for most of the movie um, from, from the very beginning. And so it was just the way that we rendered certain scenes within there and, 
uh, yeah, I mean, there, and, and there was different, obviously with the Illuminati, there were different versions. There, there was a different fun thing with Wong that we did. Um, at one point I, in my very first draft, there was a final confrontation between strange and Wanda that, that was different than what it is now. So, so it was more the details than, than the actual foundation and structure of the thing that changed. So it sounds like the film was always, you know, a, a two-hour chase. You know, um, you've you've obviously got prior experience in writing sort of films that have that momentum, like uh, you know, the worst guy of all time, which I believe was the script, the spec script that kind of landed you the gig at Marvel. That had that same kind of chase feeling, that same momentum. What do you love about chase stories? And and at what point did you realize that this film needed to be structured that way—a chase through the multiverse? Yeah, that was, that, that was my, my script that I wrote that, that luckily was about time travel at a time that Marvel was, was trying to, to make a time travel show about Loki. Um, I guess I just, I like the momentum of, of that, uh, of, of any chase that, you know, movies like Jurassic Park, uh, like aliens, like Terminator, Terminator 2, um thrillers really that that don't ever really let up you know and and when they do you're just catching your breath uh and and you know that that breath catching is going to be interrupted by a monster coming around (laughs) the corner um that felt like a fun thing to get to do in a doctor strange movie that was being directed by sam raimi who we knew we wanted to do something that was um, that was scary and that, and it had more horror elements. And as a horror fan, I I'm more of a, I'm more of a fan of stuff like aliens, like, like the thriller sort of stuff, I guess, than I am of more psychological type horror and everything. So maybe it just aligned more with my, personal taste in terms of trying to write something like that. Um, and I, I was just like, I don't want anybody to ever be bored. That was, you know, I'm also afraid of that. As you mentioned, you, you did come on board the project around the same time as Sam Raimi. There's a lot of elements of the story that could be called Raimiisms. Like, well, you know, there's an evil book, for example, there's a zombie, you know, were there fun things, were these fun things that you kind of sprinkled in on purpose, like based on who you knew was going to be, directing this film or, or were those elements already in the mix? I guess I'm just curious as to how much you lent into the fact that this was going to be a movie for a director with a particular signature. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the dark hold was always going to be a big element of this because we were continuing the story of Wanda and, and WandaVision, but obviously it was fun. Uh, <laughs> the book of the dam uh, being you know, shot again by Sam Raimi is cool. Um, Zombie Strange, that was an element that actually found its way into the script later. There was a different, uh, the fight with the evil Strange was an entirely different scene originally that didn't lead into um, that Zombie Strange element. And so when we cracked that, that was a really thrilling, oh my God, we get to, it, it wasn't like we, we were trying to do, we, we didn't go into it saying we got to give Sam a zombie 
scene. It, it was actually strange is stuck in this nightmare universe. We need to get him out of here and we need to get him back to Mount Wondegore. How can he do that? And the only tool at his disposal was dreamwalking, which felt rich because that's what Wanda had been doing. And I'm like, all right, let's see the bad, let's see the hero do what the bad guy's been doing. It, it was an element that the audience already understood. So we weren't introducing something totally new. So the question became, well, okay, great, but who is he going to dreamwalk into? Uh, and then it was, I was with Richie Palmer, our producer, and we both kind of had the light bulb, like, oh shit, that's strange that dies in the beginning. Let that body just get sucked through the portal with America. Um, and there you go. It suddenly, and then it was like, oh man, he can possess a corpse. And, <laughs> and so, then, you know, then it was, we knew we were really serving Sam up something great. Did the release date changes caused by COVID force you to to shift any story elements around that were maybe sort of pre-existing in, in what you inherited in terms of this story? Like, I know that Multiverse of Madness was originally slated to come out before Spider-Man No Way Home. There are all sorts of reports that America Chavez was supposed to appear in No Way Home, having been introduced in this movie because it would have already come out, you know, um, and, and, and supposedly the, the sort of rumor mill suggests that Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, they had to adjust their script to have Ned opening portals in their film because America hadn't yet been introduced. How did it work out for you? Were there similarly parts of your script that had to change because of all the release dates kind of shuffling around like that? Well, any rumor that involves McKenna and Summers having to do extra work because of me makes me happy. <laughs> uh, so I hope that was true. Um, I, I mean, not really, because we knew that that decision was made fairly early on. Um, and really what it meant was, okay, we could hit the ground running that much more that because before it was going to really be incumbent upon us to explain to the broader MCU film audience, what is the multiverse in the way that um, Spider-Man No Way Home had to somewhat. And so after that, you can kind of assume everybody seeing our movie has, has seen that understands the concept and also Stephen Strange and Wong are familiar with it. They, they know the multiverse is bad news. Um, they're not having to be like, wait, what is this? Uh, and so it was just helpful really for us in, in that sense and in, in that the audience was already somewhat primed. So I'm, I'm glad. And then I don't, you know, America, Ned's opening sling ring portals. America, she can do the multiversal portals, but you see her even at the end of our movie, it's like, She's open a door to another universe. One thing, opening a portal down the block. That, that's a whole another one. That, that, that's, a, that's a different skill set that she's still learning. That actually raises a really interesting question. You know, now with so many movies and shows into the MCU, what's the approach in terms of, I suppose, accessibility for audiences? Like there's so much storytelling baggage and background that informs this story if you haven't seen WandaVision, for example, you're, you're in for a confusing time. Is the policy at Marvel at this point to write, assuming 99% of the audience has seen everything that's come before it, 
Do you trust newcomers to be able to catch up and deduce things from context? Like, what's the approach there? I guess it's it's a it's a little bit of both. You you on the one hand assume that most people have some knowledge of what's going on this this deep into it, um, and you you don't want to, but you but you also want to tell a story that's accessible to anybody, and that that was really important to Sam that it, that anybody could walk in off the street and still be swept up in this adventure. Um, at the same time, you don't want to make it so accessible that it that it starts to feel like it's not rewarding for the people that have watched everything. You know, it is ultimately a serialized journey. So, so I, you know, I think you've got to think of it as this is another episode in the ongoing saga of the MCU. Your enjoyment of it will certainly be enhanced if you've seen everything leading up to it. I think in the case of this movie, especially WandaVision, especially the other Doctor Strange movies. Um, but even if you haven't, it's our job to tell a story good enough, fun enough that you can have a blast either way. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Let's dive into some some beats from the movie. You know, you, you mentioned hitting the ground running with this film and wow, yeah, it, it really does begin at 100 miles per hour with this, this thrilling chase. America Chavez and Doctor Strange, or at least a version of him, are being pursued by a demon in the space between universes searching for something called the Book of Vishanti. It's a little bit Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the way that this kind of, this opening drops you into a movie already in motion. What, what attracted you to, to the idea of this as your opening scene? And, and were there other opening scenes kind of in contention before you landed on this one? No, this this was always, always our opening. Um, there... Is, yeah, Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great 
example um, <laughs> of a cool movie. Uh, <laughs> but I think what, what we wanted to do was make the audience feel like, oh, wow, we're seeing the end of a Doctor Strange movie that just happened. Really, because w- what we're doing in that scene is we're introducing America. Uh, a a new character that we're asking the audience to care a lot about in this movie. And so we wanted to feel a, just the breadth of journey she's been on, you know, look where she is. God knows what she's had to do just get here. Uh, And then at the end of all that, this guy that's been her partner turns on her um, and tries to kill her. And, And so it was a way of introducing America also introducing the concept of a multiversal Dr. Strange, which felt like an immediate way to deliver on the promise of, of what the movie was. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, that was just, we, we wanted to hit the ground running. I think we did. And obviously America being in this movie, she, you know, facilitates the plot because, you know, it sends strange on this mission, but you know, there seems to be something kind of like thematic coinciding in terms of like, she is someone who is struggling to control something, this kind of power that she has, it only comes out when she's afraid. We've talked already about Wanda's struggles with control, about strangers' struggles with control. How did you kind of shape that character and and make it so that there was a sort of thematic reason for her to be in the film? Yeah, it, it was, we couldn't, we never wanted America to just feel like she was the MacGuffin, you know, yes, she, she, her powers are MacGuffin like, uh, in that she can open, uh, doors to other universes. And I think in fact, that is in a lot of ways, the argument that strange and Wanda are having in this movie is to Wanda. She is just a MacGuffin and strange is saying, no, she's a child. Um, a child that he's really, growing to care for more and more over the course of this movie. And um, I think that as strange in America get to know one another more, he sees himself in her and she sees himself herself in him. They're both loners um, who've experienced tragedy, who experienced trauma. Uh, their, their go-to defense mechanism is, is, a sharp tongue, a uh, smart ass remark. Um, and I think they both struggle with issues of control. And, and that's, that's what makes strange the ideal mentor for her in the end, because when that guy is the one who says to you, trust your power, you've been controlling it all along. That's what really finally unlocks it for America. And we see strange at Christine's wedding which you know, that, that's how we're kind of reacquainted with this character. It's, it's a really interesting element of the movie. The fact that, you know, there's a love story in here that's about closure rather than reconciliation. You know, often these films are about like a hero winning back his old flame or something like that. Why was it important to go a different way with this, Michael? Like it, was the motivation for closing the loop with Christine something that you felt like Strange had to go through in keeping with that idea we talked about earlier of there being some things in life beyond his control? Was, was there a kind of motivation to kind of clear the decks in this movie in terms of his love interest? Because as we saw in the post-credits, we're going to be introducing Cleo. What was the, uh, yeah, what was the drive for that decision? 
look, first off, the, the drive was to get Rachel McAdams back because she's <laughs> she's awesome. And I, yeah. and I think that her uh, charm and, and very, she, she's just somebody that the audience can kind of impart onto and feel like they're on this adventure with having her in the movie in a movie where this much crazy shit is happening is a, is just always nice. Um, I think about, I go back to the first movie, which, which is, I think so brilliant. Um, and even there at the end, when, when Steven has become a sorcerer and he has taken over the New York sanctum, he looks down and he's wearing that broken watch. Um, and so there's still, a part of his heart uh, directly connected to Christine Palmer that is, that is unhealed. He doesn't have closure. Um, and so, yeah, we wanted to use the, the multiversal concept of, wow, what if maybe in another life actually explore that other life, but perhaps go somewhere unexpected. Um, and so the journey that, that strange goes on here at her, at her wedding, Strange says to her, I had to make sacrifices. That's because we couldn't be, that's why we couldn't be together. And I, and I think the, the subtext I hope there and what he says and in her response is that's kind of bullshit. Like that's him trying to play like he's Spider-Man. Uh, but really he's just afraid. He's afraid of connection. And it's not until the very end of the movie that he can stand opposite another Christine Palmer and tell her the truth, which is, I do love you. Uh, I just get scared. Um, And she gives him the bit of wisdom he needs to hear, which is to face your fears. You know, that, that, that's of all the scariest things in the multiverse to a Doctor Strange connecting with someone else, you know, giving your heart over to someone else, that that's the most frightening. And hearing that from a multiversal version of the woman he loves, uh, I do think is the form of closure he's searching for in this movie. And, and yeah, now, and now inner Clea. The, the way that this great love of Stevens has moved on sort of un- underlines how his life isn't where he wants it to be, even if he's He's not quite ready to admit that to himself. In this scene and throughout the film, we have this motif, him being asked, are you happy, Stephen? Let's unpack that question, Michael. Like it comes up a lot in the film. Why was that an important question for for Strange to be confronted with again and again? I thought that 20, however many films into the MCU, after all these guys and girls have saved the world and the universe dozens and dozens of times, it was really, it was an interesting place to go to just pose the question, does, does saving the universe make you happy? You save the universe, you stop Thanos, you brought everybody back, you, you save the day, you stop Dormammu from eating the planet. But when you go home at night to your empty mansion and you take off your cloak, are you fulfilled? Are you, are you happy or are you still the same guy when you were a successful surgeon that always felt like, okay, what's the next case? What's the next speaking engagement? Did Steven really just replace his life as a doctor with his life as a surgeon? Um, I don't think there's necessarily a clean answer 
to that. And I don't, and I, and even Wong isn't able to give him one, but I think that that's the exciting thing about where we are in the MCU. I think that's true to Stan Lee's vision, which is always, how can you really excavate the humanity in these superheroes? And then when you have an actor like Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, you, you can go to those great dramatic places in the same movie where you have all this crazy superhero stuff going. We get this extraordinary introduction to America Chavez. There's that amazing fight scene in which uh, she and Strange fight Gargantos, the giant squid. Um, Strange connects with America and decides to help her. He then realizes that there's witchcraft afoot here. And of course, he goes to consult Wanda Maximoff, his old friend from the Avengers. Unfortunately, he discovers that she's actually behind the attacks. She, uh, it transpires, believes that America's powers can help her connect with the children that she conjured in Westview in the series WandaVision. So yeah, Michael, let's talk about Wanda. It must have been some high wire act when it came to writing her arc in this movie. You know, you've got to sell this character that fans have previously cheered for as a terrifying threat. You've also got to keep sight, I suppose, of the trauma that's been inflicted upon her, like the tragedy behind the terror. That balance of sympathy for, for Wanda and, and also turning her into someone to send fear down viewers' spines. How tricky was that to pull off? And, and yeah, how would you describe the journey that she goes on in this movie? Uh, that, that was the high wire act, wasn't it? Uh, well, well it's, all, it's all made much easier when you have Elizabeth Olsen playing that part um, and doing such an amazing job selling Wanda's tragedy. Um, I think that we had the benefit of, to me, this the story of WandaVision. I, I, I felt like this, this was the continuation of what happened in WandaVision, which was not, again, my interpretation or our interpretation was not necessarily the story of Wanda making a heroic turn at the end. It was Wanda um, confronting her grief, but not conquering it. And I certainly don't think that was her properly reckoning with her anger over what had happened uh, to her. And at the end of that story, she lets the town go after making them endure quite a bit, but she takes the dark hold, having learned that Wanda is also the Scarlet Witch and, and she goes and starts reading. And suddenly I, I think that she has the book of the damned whis whispering in her ear, which, which is heightening those feelings of, of anger and, um, and that desire to get her kids back, those kids that she's fallen in love with. And, and so for us, it was, it was just a matter of, well, how can we make sure that Wanda is the hero of her own story in this? And if you're a fan of Wanda, as many people are, I hope this movie still gives you stuff to cheer for. Uh, because, you know, and she, every time somebody tries to tell her, why what she's doing is wrong. She's always got a measured response, usually relating to the hypocrisy of these heroes lecturing her. Um, so yeah, we just, we trusted what, you know, that this was what we felt like was the, the next step in her story. And we built it together with Lizzie and I'm, I'm really proud of how it all came together. 
I know the the massacre at the temple that was that was uh, you know in your first draft even. It's quite brutal, you know, by Marvel standards. You know, there's a there's a lot happening. There's a lot of people killed. You know, did you need a moment of shock like that to underline that this this isn't the same wonder that we we've known from previous films and we've cheered on in the past? Like, talk me through the sort of story story math, if you like, of needing an incident like that to sell to the audience that she's someone to be feared now. Yes. Well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you, it didn't feel like we could hedge. It, it felt like, and, and it didn't, it felt like Wanda, as she came into the story, was so self-assured and, and really knew who she was, or at least who she believes herself to be, um, that it didn't feel like she needed to go on an extensive journey throughout the first act uh, building to that, but rather she's being pushed and pushed and pushed. She says to Stephen, I've warned you, I've warned you, don't make me do this. And by the way, even all this is me being reasonable because I am the Scarlet Witch and I could do a hell of a lot worse. Um, So you just, you want it to, you hope that it feels earned. And, uh, you know, I think Wanda has always rode the line uh, of the moral line throughout the, her history in the MCU. Um, but yeah, we, we wanted to announce early on in the movie that, that this is who you are meant to fear. Uh, and that even sorcerers as powerful as Dr. Strange and Wong are, totally out of their depth facing her. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was exciting. The sheer violence and darkness of where that character goes in this movie is, is made all the more powerful by the degree to which we really didn't see it coming. You know, the film's marketing very much teased this sinister version of Doctor Strange from a different multiverse. It was really easy, at least it was for me anyways, to assume from those trailers that Strange was going to be battling a version of himself as the main antagonist here. I had assumed that there was going to be a Wanda and Steven team up to help in that battle, something like that. Instead, you pulled this really clever bait and switch. How intentional was that? You know, did, did you know when you were writing that Marvel was going to conceal Wanda's antagonist role in this movie to add a certain shock power? Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious, I guess, about the synergy between the screenwriting process and Marvel's marketing department here. Well, very early, we, we, it felt like, it felt to me like the, the story people would expect was some version of Wanda maybe turning bad at the very end of this. And what I felt like would would be genuinely shocking in the theater is 20 minutes in, wait, she's the villain. She's the bad like, And then yes, she is. She is the Terminator that's after you the whole way through. Um, that felt like we were going to get to have the maximum amount of fun with, with Wanda as a villain. And so very early on in conversations of how we wanted to execute that orchard scene, and it was the whole team, you know, us, Sam, Kevin, deciding this should feel like a classic Marvel team up. Uh, 
and then we're going to, and that's, that's how we'll sell it. <laughs> we'll, we'll see, we'll see if the audience buys it. And, and fortunately the marketing team did a great job. And I think the people's love of, of Wanda and of Lizzie, you know, of her playing that character means that you wouldn't, you wouldn't really expect her to be evil that early in the movie. And that actually felt like why it was a cool choice to make. It's in the second act that we get perhaps the boldest thing I've ever seen in an MCU movie. Like the, the Illuminati scene, Michael, you know, you essentially give fans the thing that large portions of the internet have been kind of vocally, you know, desiring for a long time. The return of Patrick Stewart's Charles Xavier, the casting of John Krasinski as Reed Richards and so on. Then they're swiftly murdered and they are brutally murdered. Um, can you take me through the sort of, uh, yeah, the genesis of that whole idea and anything kind of metatextual that's happening there? Like the, the scene does seem to very consciously take things that fans have been vocal about wanting. Then it kind of weaponizes that to turn in one of the most shocking scenes in Marvel history in a, in a great way. Um, <laughs> metatextual, probably only in the sense that I was writing that scene, this draft in the summer of 2020, when it felt like the world was ending and um, it was easy to go dark at that time. I was really, I had a lot of access, uh, to just the worst possible thing happening. And the purpose of that scene, that scene exists because I love Wanda as a character so much, frankly, like, like I just became thrilled by the idea of, and we, we became thrilled of, introducing the most elite badass multiversal fighting force you've ever seen only to have the scarlet witch you know massacre that that felt like we could get kind of a red wedding make your stomach sink feeling in the theater and i've had it's been it's been my greatest joy from the movie being out was the was opening weeks hearing the cheers for, for Reed Richards and everybody <laughs> groans when, when they're murdered. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's there, you know, to, to show you don't, don't fuck with the Scarlet Witch. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and they, <laughs> they learn, they find out. Well, it also, uh, you know, announces to the audience that from that moment on, like all bets are off. Like it can, this film can and does go wherever the hell it likes from that moment. Doctor Strange dream walking in his own multiverse corpse. Why not? An emotional pep talk from a zombie Doctor Strange. Why not? Um, the zombie pep talk is actually one of my sort of like favorite moments from the film. It's uh, it's it's something I haven't seen before, and, and it's uh, yeah. It, I'd be interested to hear Michael like how you wrote that scene. And what it was that you felt like America Chavez's character needed to hear in that moment. It seems to be a moment of learning for, for both characters. Yes, totally. We, it's, it's Stephen finally stepping into the role of a mentor um, and of a teacher. He's something that Wong has long been. Uh, but, but now Strange really finally is becoming, uh, almost without even realizing He's, he's going from protector to teacher. And I don't, I think the Stephen Strange that you met at the beginning of the very first Doctor Strange movie is the last guy you ever would have expected would be teaching someone else, either a resident or a, a young sorcerer. So in that sense, it was, it was a great way to, to signify his growth. And, and we built that scene 
every, look, everything was built as a team in this entire, in this entire movie, you know, that, that goes without saying that one specifically, Sam, he and I worked really closely on what is that journey for America? You know, what, what, what are the words that she needs to hear? How can we, how can it feel like something simple, but not so simple that it's like, well, wait, that was stupid. Why, why didn't, how come nobody ever said that? It's not like he just says abracadabra, but really it's the story of a character, America, who's been on her own for so long and has blamed herself for splitting her family up and is really thought that she was cursed. It's somebody that she respects and cares about and cares for her standing over her as a zombie and saying, it's not a curse. It's a gift. Your power is a gift. What makes you different um, is a gift. Uh, And that's how we're going to save the day. And, and to get to say that, you know, to a Latina character, to a, a gay character, it's just, it felt like a really cool opportunity. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I, I love that moment. And Benedict and Sochi are both so amazing in it. And the other strand of the film to resolve, of course, was Wanda's arc. You mentioned in your early draft, that this played out slightly differently. You know, I, I don't know how much you can tell me about the initial ending for that character, but in the finished version, she gets a somewhat redemptive ending that's powered not by some big CGI battle. She isn't defeated. She has instead this emotional character-driven moment that powers the ending. She finally finds the kids that she's been searching for, only to see in them a reflection of the monster she's become. There's a lot of ambiguity as to where she ends up in this movie. We see her crushed by a mountain, but we never see her body. You know, it's not conclusive what happens to her. Talk me through all this, Michael. What happened to Wanda here? How did you land on this ending for the character? Um, that ending with the kids and how she's finally defeated, that was also very Sam-driven. Under- understanding... We all understood we're not going to beat Wanda with special effects. <laughs> you know, it's no amount of CG lights are going to take down the Scarlet Witch. Um, and so it was going to have to be emotion and, and that idea of give her what she wants. Um, and, and so it's great. She finally gets to see herself as a monster through, through the eyes of the people she cares for most, her children. Um, and, you know, she is, <clears throat> she, Wanda is the Scarlet Witch. The Scarlet Witch is Wanda. I think she spends this movie acting as the Scarlet Witch, not as the Wanda we know. And I think in those final moments, though, she she returns more to the Wanda we knew and know and makes a heroic choice to bring down Mount Wondegore, uh and destroy the dark hold in every universe, you know, which is a huge thing and, and protects not just other universes, but protects other Wandas in other universes from being tempted by it. And, and then, yeah, you know, I think it's, it's always the tricky balance of how much do you show 
we don't show, we don't show her body being physically crushed by the mountain. <laughs> uh, so who knows? Who knows what happened in there? Yeah. Well, it's a really satisfying ending that obviously leaves things open in a way that's conducive to the long-running saga that Marvel are telling here. Speaking of long-running sagas, Michael, you finished up on Strange and were immediately whisked off to a galaxy far, far away. You've been writing a Star Wars movie. This isn't my first rodeo. I know there's not a lot you can tell me, but if I can ask two things, I'd love to hear first if there's a surprising movie or screenplay that's been a reference point for you in writing that. And if there were any lessons about your craft that you learned on Doctor Strange, you were able to carry over into that next project. I can't answer that last. Whatever, whatever I say to that last one, it, it'll come. I, I won't think it's a, an illuminating answer, but, but it'll, it'll end up uh, being one. Um, well, no, I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm really excited to work with, uh, I, I love Star Wars to work with the Lucasfilm team with Kathy Kennedy. And I mean, everything those guys are doing is amazing. Um, so yeah, that, that's fun. As far as lessons, um, I've, I continue to learn that all that matters is character, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I guess I've been, I've been the steward of two movies that maybe had a, a large amount of multiversal exposition and stuff to, to get through. And I, and I, I keep learning uh, and we'll probably always keep learning that, you know, none of that shit actually matters. You just need enough to get swept up in the, uh, in the emotion um, and, and sitting and, and seeing, sitting with audiences which we haven't gotten to do in so long sitting in a packed theater and feeling which moments land, which moments don't that you thought were going to kill, you know, where, where do you feel the audience's attention waning? Um, it's all an education. Uh, you're never going to get it a thousand percent right, but you try to just you try to learn from every viewing in a theater. It's very informative. I tried to see the movie as many times as I could because I just learned so much from that. Well, Michael, thanks so much, man. This has been so much fun. Congrats again on the movie. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see everything else you've got coming up. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. This is a blast. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.